Hi everyone, I'm Raj. I'm Ashwin. And I'm Eddie. And this is Blood Cancer Talks. We are a podcast dedicated exclusively to hematologic malignancies, where we bring content experts who live and breathe a particular disease and focus on the latest advances in biology and clinical management. Please take a moment to rate and review our podcast in whichever app you listen to your podcasts in. Today, we are excited to review the hottest updates in myeloma from the American Society of Hematology 2023 meeting held just over a week ago in San Diego. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Benjamin Derman. Ben is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Chicago and a clinical investigator in myeloma. He has a special interest in minimal residual disease or MRD, along with MRD-guided decision-making in myeloma. Thanks so much, Ben, for joining us. Before we start, can, can you tell a little bit about yourself and your clinical and research focus? I, I thank you very much for having me to all of you, Raj, Ashman, and Eddie. I think you summarize it nicely. I live and breathe, as you said, all things myeloma in this case, or plasma cell disorders. And I do have a particular interest in MRD, whether you call it minimal or measurable residual disease. I don't care. As long as we're talking the same language, it's all good. With a particular focus in, in using it potentially to guide decision-making in myeloma. So that's definitely one piece. And I mean, who can be doing plasma cell disorders without being engaged in cellular therapies right now? So that's another, you know, a major clinical focus uh, that I have at the moment. So first of all, we'll focus on a few abstracts on the precursor state, predominantly MGUS or monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance. So we had two, I think, really interesting abstracts from ISTOP MM in the Icelandic group, where they provided a revised definition of light chain MGUS, which I think is hugely impactful for our clinical practice since we get so many referrals these days for slightly abnormal free light chain ratios along with normal serum and urine electrophoresis, which makes it especially challenging in the clinic when patients have a normal kidney function and have a slightly abnormal serum free light chain ratio. What do you make of that? And for the audience, the traditional definition of light chain MGUS was an abnormal free light chain ratio that is outside of the range of 0.26 and 1.65, along with an elevated involved free light chain or IFLC, and of course, no intact M protein on SPEP or immunofixation which I always thought that the definition was a little bit too liberal. Now, in the ISTOP MS study, they used data from 42,000 individuals in Iceland to define the normal range for serum-free light chain ratio, as well as the absolute kappa and lambda levels, which automatically changes the diagnostic criteria for light chain MGUS. They also had another interesting abstract that showed that none of the patients who had a serum-free light chain ratio of less than 3.15 and uh, just to remind the audience, the upper normal limit is 1.65, but none who had a serum free light chain ratio of less than 3.15 had clonal plasma cells in the bone marrow by next generation flow. So Ben, can you tell us about the, some of the key findings of these abstracts and how will it impact your clinical practice? Yeah, well, I think the other thing just to introduce the concept too is that in that study, they were looking specifically for this abstract with those with an EGFR of 60 or greater. So the idea was, Let's take out the patients with CKD for a moment, because that was the subject of a different analysis. So, and then of course they removed patients who were known to have a lymphoproliferative disorder. So this is trying to identify among healthy individuals with, or reasonably good renal function, what is that ratio that is within normal you know, limits. And the, the interesting thing, as you said, is that we have this traditional ratio of 0.26 to 1.65. And what they identified was that the new upper limit of the ratio is probably closer to 2.16 for a, uh, patients who are uh, under 70. And it was around 2.59, 2.6 for patients who are age 70 
and older. And this has meaningful implications because if you try to look at who would be classified as having light chain MGUS, it goes down from something like 2% in their population to 0.3%. So this helps a lot of us out because the people that we would be seeing in clinic, we can say, ah, by these updated criteria, you actually don't have light chain MGUS. It saves problem lists in the electronic medical record. It saves worry from patients and may reduce the number of referrals. The other thing that was interesting from the study was that when they looked uh, close to four years out of follow-up of these patients, those who sort of met criteria for MGUS by the old definition, but not by the new definition, none of those patients have progressed to, to any blood cancers, which I think is really reassuring. If, if I could say one thing about it, though, would be Similar to a lot of the data that came out of Mayo uh, from what we knew about MGUS ranges in the past, this population is also lacking in diversity. I mean, this was coming from Iceland. It's a predominantly white population. And I work on the south side of Chicago. Most of the patients that I see are Black. And the one thing that I do wonder is, does these same, do these same ranges apply to different populations? We're not going to know that. I mean, this is a fantastic study. So many patients. I mean, you'll never, I don't think we'll ever be able to replicate something like this again at a population scale. But I, I that is one thing that I take away from it. And yeah. And then the last point is, uh, does it matter unless our hospitals or reference labs actually alter their ranges? Because we, you and I, all of us here may know how to interpret it, but ultimately somebody else who's ordering this test, a primary care physician, a cardiologist, a neurologist, anyone, nephrologist, they need to know about this data too. Yeah, that's kind of the big challenge as to how to disseminate this information. And I agree that putting changing the reference level in the electronic medical record, that is going to be the key game changer in the referral pattern. And, and hopefully over time, some other groups, even using retrospective cohort studies, will be able to validate these findings in a diverse population. At least for now, like when I'm getting a referral in the past week, I think I got two patients like this and I, I was able to reassure them. Both of them had a serum free latching ratio of less than 3.15 but it's definitely needs to be uh, yeah. integrated into the electronic medical records. I think it's nice to be able to point to data and say, hey, this is what we knew all along, but now I can actually officially say it. And if it actually saves us diagnoses to put in a patient's chart, which may have implications or even cost implications, insurance, uh, all those things, I mean, all the better. Yeah. All right. So now we will move to newly diagnosed myeloma, which is the most exciting area in ASH this year. So we'll first talk about the Persia study, which was a late-breaking abstract of DARA VRD versus VRD. So just for the audience, Persia was a large phase three randomized trial in patients with transplant-eligible newly diagnosed multiple myeloma who were randomized to DARA VRD versus VRD induction, followed by a single autotransplant consolidation followed by additional consolidation with DARA VRD versus VRD based on their initial treatment arm. And then subsequently, the patients in DARA VRD arm got DARA Revlimid maintenance, and patients in the VRD arm got only Revlimid maintenance. An important point to highlight here is that there was no second randomization prior to maintenance. So automatically, the patients in the DARA arm got DARA R maintenance, and VRD arm got Revlimid maintenance. And to provide context, this trial builds upon the phase two Griffin trial, which was a smaller phase two randomized study with similar design and showed a greater stringent CR rate with the addition of daratumumab, which was the primary endpoint of that trial. Griffin was not powered to look at PFS or progression-free survival. So Ben, what were the top line results of Perseus trial and what did we learn from Perseus beyond, you think, what we already knew from Griffin? 
And I, I'm going to make a note about one thing about the Griffin trial, though, related to what you said, which is that the primary endpoint was supposed to be or was stringent CR after consolidation or the stringent CR rate after consolidation. And they were powered to show to look at a 15% difference between DARA VRD and actually didn't meet the primary endpoint. But I think it was a silly endpoint to begin with. And that's because figuring out who has a stringent CR with patients on DARA, which is an IgG kappa monoclonal antibody, can be confusing because patients most commonly, 35% or so, have an IgG kappa paraprotein. And when you're looking only at a couple months out from transplant, which is a couple of months of consolidation, which is, was the primary endpoint, I don't know that you're really going to see that much more stringent CR rates when you're talking about effective therapy, whether it's a triplet or a quadruplet. But we all saw the secondary analysis of PFS over the last couple of years that was starting to show differences at the two, three, and now four-year mark. And that's what's really encouraging about the Perseus data and whether we say, a lot of people are saying, is this practice changing? For maybe many of the community physicians that I work with who weren't using it before, I would say, yes, it's totally practice changing for many of them. For me, it's, I would call it practice affirming because this is something that I adopted um, at least a couple of years ago. And it's good to see this. So we see that the percentage of patients with an MRD negative status at 10 to the minus six, which I focus more on than minus five, was 65% in the DARA VRD group versus 32% in the VRD group. So basically twice that. And when you look at PFS now at four years, we see that it was 84% for your PFS for DARA VRD versus 68% for VRD. And you, you actually even see separation of the curves happening as early as 12 months, which tells us that the induction piece is super important, right? This addition of the CD38 monoclonal antibody you start, starts to show its effect even pretty early on. We're not going to have any overall survival data for some time. At least it's going to be immature for a while. And I think a lot of it's going to depend a little bit on post-protocol therapies because a, a, a critic of this trial would say, this trial does not tell me if I give DARA in the second line after getting VRD transplant and LEN maintenance, does adding DARA in the second line make up for any differences that we would see in the first line? So if most people in the VRD arm who make it to a second line of therapy or alive and when they're progressing, then great. And we're going to have that data. Uh, historically, we haven't always seen that, but I think DARA has been out long enough now and in, in enough countries that hopefully most patients are going to be able to get this in the second line if they didn't in the first. What about toxicity? I mean, neutropenia was maybe a little bit higher, but we're not seeing increased risk of febrile neutropenia. There were some higher rates of infection like COVID and pneumonia, but not high-grade infections and none that led to discontinuation or increase in deaths. Maybe the only difference I saw was really in the stem cell collection piece. The median uh, CD34 yield was about five and a half million per kilo um, for DARA VRD versus seven and a half. And that's something that I've noticed practically clinically as well, that you tend to get lower stem cell yields with the quadruplet therapy, but that doesn't seem to be at least affecting the outcomes in, in the early days. 
Yeah, I, th- I think um, you made some really good points. And regarding response in the Griffin trial, I remember uh, Dr. Costa had mentioned in one of our podcast episodes in, in the past that there should be only three categories of response in myeloma, non-responders, responders, and MRD negative responders. So that's why the stringent CR and CR, I mean, do they really mean anything in that of MRD? I don't know. I mean, there was a nice paper by Dr. Bruno Paiva's group, I think, in blood of last year on whether CR really matters. And that kind of shows the challenge of uh, measuring CR. So one follow-up question I had was that, as you say, this trial is more of a practice confirming than practice changing for most of us because you have been already using quads for some time now, mostly in induction. However, can you comment on whether you would also use DARA during maintenance in a patient who is otherwise not a high-risk patient? And any ongoing trials that will answer that question in the future, whether we need to add DARA in the maintenance as well? That's a, I mean, it's a great question. I think a lot of us are asking ourselves this after this talk and then the publication of the the paper in New England Journal. Well, okay, let me give you the reasons why this is sort of supportive of using DARA and maintenance, and then I'm going to give you the reasons why it's not. So we do see a deepening of MRD negativity after consolidation. So remember, patients who are in the DARA VRD arm get DARA and LEN for an extended period of time during maintenance. And the end of consolidation to best response in terms of MRD negativity at 10 to the minus six. So we're going to focus on minus six because that's what I care about. It increased in the DARA VRD arm from 34% at the end of consolidation to 65% as a best response. And contrast that with the VRD group where they just got LEN maintenance and the MRD negativity at 10 to the minus six increased from 16 to 32%. So, okay. What that means is there was a doubling of MRD negativity in either arm. So you could say there's similar magnitude of benefit, but we don't care as much about that. What I care about is the absolute number of patients who actually achieved MRD negativity at some point. And it's not only higher post-consolidation, but it's substantially higher, even higher as a best response. So To me, that speaks a little bit to not just the power of maintenance in general for helping to achieve MRD negativity at these deep rates, but the absolute increase was greater for the DARA VRD group, right? It was almost 30%, it was over 30% versus about 16% um, in absolute terms. So does that sort of speak to the power of daratumumab as maintenance? Because what else might uh, account for that? The flip side is we've been aware of the Cassiopeia trial, which was DARA VTD versus VTD with a transplant, but they had a second randomization, which was DARA versus observation. It wasn't LEN, of course, but it was DARA versus observation, but it provided this natural experiment to see what is the individual impact or benefit of DARA maintenance among patients who got DARA during induction. And this has been talked about by many and I think the fact that patients who got DARA as induction did not benefit from DARA maintenance compared to observation had people like me thinking, well, I don't know, do we really need to include the CD38 as maintenance therapy? But that's not really the question that we want to know. The question we all want to know is if we're already going to do LEN as maintenance, does adding the CD38 monoclonal antibody help? The randomized trials that are investigating this, like the Origa study and the Dramatic study, they have sort of designs that I'm not going to get all into, but they're not really investigating the impact of the anti-CD38 
in all in only patients who got it during induction. There are going to be patients who did not receive the anti-CD38 during induction. And I fear that we're not really going to get the answer from that. Probably the best chance of it is a German study, the GMMG HD7 trial, which is looking at isatuximab as part of a quadruplet therapy with the PI and IMID. And what they're doing is a second randomization for patients receiving lenalidomide versus isatuximab and lenalidomide. And that may be the trial that tells us this, that gives us this answer. One last piece, and I wanted to ask your guys' thoughts on this too, is the Emory group presented on their real-world data of DARA VRD versus VRD. And amazingly, they have 326 patients who got DARA VRD, and they have thousands of patients who got VRD, high risk, standard risk, all that stuff. And what they did for their DARA VRD patients is they did not include, they did not continue the CD38 monoclonal antibody during maintenance for their patients. For high risk patients, they would get a, a proteasome inhibitor, usually bortezomib with lenalidomide, but they did not do standard CD38, anti-CD38 maintenance. And if you look at their curves, the four-year PFS looks identical to the, the data that was presented with Perseus. So I don't know, do you find that convincing at all that that uh, one way or another that we should or should not be using uh, CD38 as maintenance? Yeah, for standard risk patients, I guess I don't know. Right now, I'm not using it. Based on the Cassiopeia trial, that kind of is the main reason for me not using it because it showed that data maintenance doesn't really work when you get data on induction. But again, I see your points and data is, daratumumab is overall, other than the cost aspect, it's a fairly non-toxic. We have not really seen data maintenance causing a lot of infection deaths, for example. So I think I'm really waiting for the GMMG HD7 trial. I think that will provide us a really clean answer as to whether we really need data maintenance in patients who got data or like any anti-CD38 during induction. I wanted to ask, I, I mean, I think Cassiopeia trial gives a, a, a as sort of Raj hints at a kind of cleaner example, but the MRE data sort of adds that nicely. I wonder, you talked about kind of deepening of MRD during maintenance over time. Do we really know that deepening something, you know, deepening someone's MRD is going to, in a non-curative setting, going to really going to, or perhaps non-curative set, probably non-curative setting, I'm going to benefit them over time. I mean, to me, the other issue is this, like, not just time toxicity, but really freedom from having to come to the infusion centre, because, like, popping a lenalidomide pill or a few pills, to me, is very different from rocking up to the centre for your daratumab infusion. Well, yeah, so I'll answer that in a couple of ways. One is, with Cassiopeia, a someone could respond with, well, Dara was only given every eight weeks, is maintenance. And I don't think that's sufficient. So maybe it was observation versus suboptimal DARA as maintenance. And that's the reason why we see what we see. Coming to your question, your more pointed question about the what is the impact of deepening of MRD negativity? One of the more interesting studies that came out this year that I think is sort of applicable here um, is um, a Spanish study that wasn't presented necessarily at ASH, but it, it got published in Blood very recently by Rosignol and colleagues, which was seemingly an uninteresting question to us nowadays, which is um, IRD, exazomib, lenalidomide dex versus lendex as a maintenance therapy. And no surprise to us in my alone world, there wasn't really a, a difference at all in MRD negativity. There wasn't a difference in PFS. There wasn't a difference in overall survival. Exazomib as a maintenance drug has a very limited role, if at all, I would argue. I don't use it 
But there was a, a really interesting piece to this study, which was after two years of maintenance therapy, patients who were MRD negative by Euroflow, a very deep MRD negative negativity assessment, they could they would then discontinue therapy. And among those patients, the four-year progression-free survival from the time of stopping treatment was 83%. That means that 83% of people were still alive and free of progression after stopping all therapy with two years of maintenance therapy. Whereas the patients who were MRD positive and continued with therapy, their four-year progression-free survival was 50%. What that tells me is that getting to MRD negativity is very important. And I hate that I have to have that conversation with patients. And I had a very challenging conversation just yesterday. I can elaborate on it a little bit more, but in my opinion, you have about two years with maintenance to get to MRD negativity. And if you don't get there by two years, it's not happening. And the vast majority of those patients are going to relapse. That is an inevitability. We could talk about MGUS-like phenotypes. We can talk about all that stuff. That is like pie in the sky. That's 5% of patients. It is a very small percentage. And we shouldn't necessarily be, I mean, yeah, I told patients that's a possibility, but one out of 20 are like that. It's not the majority. So I do think achieving MRD negativity is super important. But you then you create problems like this. Saw a patient yesterday, got DARA-VRD, got a transplant, did two cycles of DARA-VRD, at the end of transplant, before the consolidation, I did an MRD test. They had 300 cells per million. So they were positive at 10 to the minus four. Okay. I did the standard consolidation. And then I said, your standard risk, you're going to go on lend maintenance. I don't have a reason to give you CD38. I do a bone marrow a year later after the last one. She's down to, to five cells per million. I say, boom, we're awesome. We're doing great. Another year, you're going to be an MRD negative. You're going to be great. I'm going to put you on my study to discontinue therapy. It's going to be awesome. Except it didn't go that way. A year later, we do another bone marrow. She's at 14 cells per million. Okay. So did I do the wrong thing by doing all of this? Because now I have to walk back a little bit, right? She didn't achieve MRD negativity. Maybe you could argue there's a log fold change here. I don't know. Should I have done DARA? Should I have continued it? Maybe the two cycles of DARA VRD was what provided her all that benefit and the LEN was just kind of keeping things at bay. Is she going to have MGUS-like phenotype? Is she going to realize? These are all the Pandora's box that I opened up by assessing MRD. But I have to be honest with you. If she's MRD positive at two years, she's not going to get there with what we're doing with just LEN alone. Like the third year is not going to be any different than the second year. Like, how do you... So, so what should you tell people? Like, should we have been, I, these are cases where I'm like, maybe I should have continued the DARA. I don't know. Yeah, it's definitely challenging how to interpret these data and especially in the standard risk. In the high-risk patients, ultra-high-risk patients, I think I'm completely with you. I shoot for MRD negativity, but standard risk, I, I kind of struggle because they are, they have those MGUS-like patients, some of them, and some of them who are MRD positive, but they may still do well. And even if they progress down the line, you could still salvage them with all the good treatments that we have. So yeah, it's kind of hopefully more trials which are stopping based on MRD. I think that will really help us in the future as to how to safely de-escalate patients for MRD negativity. And if we can, then maybe getting to MRD negativity is the goal. But I think we need more data on that. All right. So in the interest of time, we'll move on to the next study. 
which was the plenary. I was a little bit perplexed at how it got the plenary, but anyway, so it was Ischia trial comparing ISA KRD versus KRD in newly diagnosed transplant eligible multiple myeloma. So similar to Perseus trial was a quad versus triplet study in newly diagnosed transplant eligible. There were a few key differences though compared to the Perseus trial. So first of all, in the maintenance phase in Ischia trial, patients received a little bit more intensive maintenance. I don't think we can really call that maintenance. So they received ISA KRD or KRD, the same thing that they got in induction, they got in maintenance. For the first one year, they called it as light consolidation with slightly decreased dosing of carfilzomib and the schedule. Whereas in the Perseus, it was either Dara Revlimid or Revlimid. And then second is the Perseus was powered for PFS, which was its primary endpoint, whereas Ischia was powered for Emani negativity rate only, which was the primary endpoint of Ischia trial, obviously. So based on this, Ben, can you tell us the top line results of the study? And also when looking at the safety and efficacy data together, how do you think carfilzomib-based cohorts, which you have a lot of experience with, compare with bortezomib-based cohorts in newly diagnosed transplant-eligible myeloma? Yeah, I, I share your your confusion over why was this a plenary, but I think it it might've been overshadowed by the fact that you have a phase three trial like Perseus with PFS as an endpoint, which we didn't know at the time, of course, uh, when these plenaries are being decided. But as far as the primary endpoint, MRD negativity at, and by NGS at 10 to the minus five after consolidation in the intention to treat population was 77% for the ESA arm and 67% for the KRD arm. And it did meet significance. The PVAL was 0.049. Someone should buy a lottery ticket that day. I'm just kidding. But when you look at MRD at 10 to the minus six, which I'm going to harp on that because I really think that's more stringent and more important number to look at, was 67% for ESA KRD versus 48% for KRD. And impressively, Patients with two or more high-risk abnormalities did seem to benefit the greatest, although we have limitations with small numbers. You'll also note that there were significant increases in MRD negativity from induction to transplant to consolidation. So each stage of therapy does deepen responses. You're going to capture more and more patients. But we only have 20 months of median follow-up, so there's no differences in PFS. And I anticipate that we probably will see differences in PFS with time. We've seen it with the other, with Perseus. And so I know that was with bortezomib-based therapy instead of a carfilzomib-based therapy, but I don't think there's going to be necessarily a major difference, but I'll come back to that in a minute. But ultimately, I'm struggling to find the significance that would justify the plenary, so to speak. I mean, it's a help, it's helpful information, but from like a regulatory perspective, I mean, KRD is not an FDA approved regimen. I mean, it is an NCCN guidelines, of course, and I, I use it as a frontline therapy, but for others, I know that's not as popular. MRD was not an accepted surrogate endpoint. So what does this study tell us? That's the part that I'm like, okay, I don't know. I mean, as a, if we have more data like this, then we can start to say, okay, a change in MRD negative, a difference in MRD negativity with this regimen at this time point corresponds to a difference in PFS between these two regimens. Great. Now you can start to put together the case for MRD to be a, a surrogate endpoint, but we don't, or at least I should say for overall survival, really, because that's what you want. That, then fine. Okay, great. But it, you could also do that without making MRD negativity the primary endpoint. What we're getting at is that people want quick readouts. They want to be able to declare superiority, especially industry. And we do trials like these, which was 
in part done in a cooperative fashion. So I don't want to say that, but it's just like, I don't know what we're going to get from a, a real life standpoint. What, what do I get out of that from a regulatory standpoint? Like the FDA, I don't think is going to review this and be like, ah, okay, ESA KRD, boom, it's approved. I do think the things that we learned though, is that um, doing for, for younger skewing patients, like in this trial who are transplant eligible, KRD as a backbone actually does seem to be pretty well tolerated long-term when you look at the toxicity data. I don't think that I'm brushing broad strokes when I use that dreaded well-tolerated term. We're not seeing um, lots of, of deaths on the study. Um, the early mortality, there were four patients in one arm, one patient in the KRD arm. So it's not like you're seeing lots of treatment-related deaths. So one thing I'll ask you guys, as somebody who uses a lot of carfilzomib in the front line, either in our studies or otherwise, does it limit your options in the second line and beyond? Because if you use bortezomib as a frontline therapy and patients progress while on that therapy, you can use carfilzomib in the second line. We know carfilzomib works in bortezomib refractory patients, but the opposite is not necessarily true. We really don't have data on that. And we assume that it's not true, that if you have refractoriness to carfilzomib, you cannot, you're not going to go and necessarily use bortezomib. What do you think, guys? What do you guys think about that? Yeah, so I I use carfilzomib-based triplets or quads, I would say sparingly. So I would use them only in patients who are like very young and fit, like if I were 40-something-year-old, which is, of course, rare in myeloma, but with no comorbidities or 50s. But in patients, you know, who are late 60s or 70s, a typical patient, I worry with carfilzomib a lot. Uh, I don't know, maybe my clinical experience, the type of patients we, we cater to, uh, but we, I did have... A lot of experience with symptomatic toxicities like dyspnea, shortness of breath after the day, they get the carfilzomib and also some cardiac and renal toxicities. So, but I agree with you that in young fit patients, like I have a 45 year old, for example, he could continue to work full time while getting Dara KRD induction. So it's for younger patients, you get like the best of both worlds, no neuropathy and no cardiac toxicity. But once they get like in their 60s, early 70s, I worry about carfilzomib. That's one thing. The second thing is regarding subsequent treatment. So in my standard risk patients, if I'm using carfilzomib, I would not use that in the maintenance phase, right? So when they are relapsing, they are carfilzomib exposed, but not necessarily carfilzomib refractory. And in my high risk patients, typically when I use a dual maintenance in ultra high risk patients, I usually use KR nowadays, not VR, because the forte is the randomized data. That's the only randomized data that we have with KR. We don't have any randomized data with VR. And in those situations, if somebody is relapsing on KR, I mean, we now have, we will have soon CAR-T, hopefully standard of care, but we have trials of early bispecifics, early CAR-T, which I would like to take the patients to. So we have options. It's not that we don't have options at that point anymore. And then of course, anti-CD38 would be another option if that was not in the maintenance phase. So that's what I would say. I mean, I don't face this situation as often because I, in patients I use carfilzomib, if they're standard risk and if I use because they were young, I will not continue carfilzomib in the maintenance phase. The GEM 2017 FIT trial, which was also presented here, it looked at whatever, a control arm that we don't use. It's VMP and RD or something, but for nine cycles each and then some DARA. But the other two arms were DARA, KRD, and I believe KRD. And when you look at the MRD negativity rates, they're much higher with KRD and DARA KRD, but even higher with the addition of DARA. And there's a lot of patients enrolled in this study. I mean, it was like 400 plus patients randomized across the three arms. The, a lot of people have pointed to the 18-month progression-free survival looks pretty similar between KRD and DARA-KRD, but the overall survival was slightly worse 
with the Dara KRD arm. And people said, this is an older patient population. The median age was 72. It was for patients not fit for transplant. So there was no transplant involved. This was just 18 cycles of Dara KRD. And you can see now the mortality is, is higher. And I would counter with that, that because I, I heard that there were people citing that the carfilzomib is the culprit there. But why does that not apply to the KRD arm? Why does that only apply to the Dara KRD arm? I so because every because we've just finished saying that the CD38 doesn't add a lot of toxicity when you're talking about it with bortezomib. Do we really think that's not true when we're talking about carfilzomib-based regimens? So I don't know. I I I, I might be biased at this point because I just have used a lot of it in our different you know IITs and and whatnot. When we can talk a little later, but you know we presented a study at ASH of 24 cycles of Dara KRD without transplant. And we had no treatment-related deaths. We had the only two people that died on the study were because of early progression, rapidly rapid progression. So to me, and, and we had very few treatment discontinuations. So I, I think that speaks to the fact that for a younger population, definitely is the case. But we had older patients who did well as well. So I don't know. It's I think experience helps. There are some quirks about whether you follow the exact package insert around fluid administration and things of that nature. But I think I think sometimes carfilzomib gets cast aside. I wanted to make a couple of brief comments in response to various things you, you both said. The, one of the big takeaways for me was the toxicity that I one of the things I texted Raj pretty much straight away was, wow, the cardiotox is so low in in both arms of ischia because I've also seen older patients have pretty bad cardio and respiratory symptoms from the carfilzomib. So, so that was a, a kind of takeaway for me. The your point about kind of both of your point about why was this plenary? To me, this might have been plenary worthy at the time point that there was enough data to show that MRD negativity is a, indeed a surrogate, which won't be for some time. And so that is an important question, but it's not answered yet by this data. And the other kind of point that I wanted to make, partly in response to the introduction by Peter Forhees, that MRD might be showing to be a good surrogate of PFS, which is important, but what's more important is, because it's sort of a surrogate of a surrogate. And so what's more important is that MRD is a surrogate for, so for overall survival eventually. And so I think it's important to think about that kind of surrogate of a surrogate fallacy and, and not to get lost in that. But, yeah, but, we, but no, I thought, yeah. We could talk for a while about this. What I would say, though, is, I mean, even there there was a publication even before ASH in Blood Advances, the, the impact of treatment effect on MRD and PFS, not OS, but PFS, that was led by Bruno Paiva, and it was an aggregate analysis from randomized clinical trials in myeloma. This is the effort that needed to be done in order to show the FDA that a delta in your MRD corresponds to a delta, in this case, in PFS, but ultimately they're going to want to see OS. But here's the thing. I mean, when you look at the R-squared value, it's not where it probably needs to be in order to be a surrogate for PFS. So this is a feather in the cap for everyone who says MRD is a bad surrogate endpoint. But there's different time points at which we're measuring MRD. There's different methods. There's different depths of sensitivity. Like, like they're not all the same. Take IFM 2009, for example, one of my favorite trials. And when they looked at NGS among patients who finished one year of maintenance therapy as prescribed in the protocol, those who were MRD negative at 10 to the minus sixth, if you fast forwarded three years, 76% of those patients, call it three quarters, were essentially uh, alive and free of progression. So the three-year PFS 
following MRD negative result, if you were 10 to the minus six, was 75%. With just VRD and one year of maintenance, regardless of transplant or not. But if you were if you made the cutoff at 10 to the minus five, it was like 45% three-year PFS. That's why I focus on 10 to the minus six. These are, that's just one, one reason. I mean, there are many, but you know, you see this time and time again, even in the master trial where they discontinued therapy, sustained MRD negativity at 10 to the minus six was what was significant in terms of outcomes, not 10 to the minus five. So again, that's what needs to be shown in the long run. And right now, IMWG says 10 to the minus five. FDA says, if you're going to use MRD for decision-making, you need to use a cutoff that is tenfold lower or higher, however you want to think about it, tenfold less sensitive than the, the threshold, right? One log, I should say one log less sensitive than the testing threshold. So if NGS is capable of 10 to the minus six, you must use 10 to the minus five for decision-making. And that's because there's concerns about accuracy at that level. But I just personally feel like if you knew that somebody had three cells per million, I wouldn't stop treatment for those patients. Or I, like that is, it maybe they'll progress less soon, but I still think that's not a good, that's not a good sign. And so in the trial that we designed at UFC at University of Chicago, we use MRD at 10 to the minus six to guide decision-making whether someone can stop or not. In the interest of time, we'll move to the trials of relapsed myeloma. So the first time I wanted to discuss, although this was a small trial, I found it very interesting. So I wanted to discuss this trial. This was a phase one, two trial of daratumumab venetoclax text in relapsed refractory myeloma, which included a small randomized portion as well, comparing daravenetoclax text versus daravelcate decks. I guess the larger trial, the phase three Lombardo trial, unfortunately is not going to happen anymore because of what happened with Canova trial. But nevertheless, in this total, 55 patients received daravenetoclax text, all T1114, 23% with additional high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities, and 92% LEN refractory. So an overall profile that is consistent with our contemporary patients right now with early relapse, most of them relapsing on LEN maintenance. And they had a median follow-up of about two, two and a half years, so had a decent median follow-up. So Ben, can you tell us the top-line results of this study? Maybe first efficacy and then toxicity with daravenetoclax text in T1114. Yeah, I guess we could look at overall response rates. You see very high response rates in the in the daraven dex arm. We have to be careful of saying daravd here because V could refer to the bortezomib or the, ven the venetoclax. So I'll try to be clear here. I mean, you see that overall response rates are almost 100% and, and a high rate of VGPR, 93%. If you look at MRD negativity, you can also see that it's far superior for Dara-Vendex versus uh, Dara-Bortezomib-Dex. It was somewhere in close to 40% versus less than 10%. When you look at PFS, I mean, it's really impressive. I mean, it's 46 months median PFS for Dara-Venetoclax-Dex versus 15 months for Dara-Bortezomib-Dexamethasone. What's unique about this study, of course, is that these are patients only who have 1114 translocations, which precludes patients who would have any of the other IGH translocations that are high risk. So there's no 414s, there's no 1416s, there's no 1420s. There were less than 20% who had a deletion 17P, although it was higher in the Dara-Bortezomib dex arm. Most patients, as you said, were LEN refractory. So it is a pretty applicable cohort from that standpoint. The DARA-VD arm, in that in this case, DARA-Bortezomib-DEX arm, did sort of outperform historical comparisons, though. 
If you look at the Castor trial, which was Deravidi versus VD, the median PFS was 8.8 .8 months among the Len refractory patients. And here we see the PFS was 15 months. So it's almost twice what we see. Um, I mean, and on top of that, you have really small numbers. It was uh, 20 some odd patients in the Dara bortezomib dex arm and 50 some odd patients, 55 for the Dara venetoclax dex arm. So I don't know how meaningful the comparison really is. Let's just look at the single arm piece of the Dara venetoclax dex. And I care more about the duration of response PFS, which is quite impressive at 46 months and albeit fewer high risk patients. So maybe this is sort of concentrated for a, a more standard risk population. And we already know that Deravendax in the uh, phase one trial that was published by Nizar Balas and colleagues in JCO, the one showed that 90% of patients were also alive and free of progression at 18 months. So this sort of goes beyond that and shows continued deep responses. So, I mean, I really like this regimen. I think it's a, a very useful and convenient regimen to me. I think it speaks to that this, it's unfortunate that venetoclax is mired in a couple of sort of failed phase three studies that's going to limit, I think, its expanded use and, and ultimately FDA approval. Yeah, so fast forward like three to four months, let's say we have Siltacel for early relapse. And then you have Dara Carfilzomib Dex or Isa Carfilzomib Dex, which is also a really good regimen. How would you think about choosing a regimen in first relapse lens refractory myeloma? Would you go for siltacil in all patients or most patients? Or would you still do triplets? And would you consider daravenetoclaxin uh, dex as long as there is no reimbursement issues in patients with T1114? Yeah. I mean, you're assuming no reimbursement issues. You're assuming everyone's, I mean, we don't know. Fitness can be variable. And also that siltacil supply is, is plentiful, which is not a guarantee. I, so... It's a really good question. I do think that we're comparing apples to oranges here. I mean, the patient population differences are probably substantial here for the reasons that I said, because you you don't have, you rarely, you're not going to have a lot of high risk patients in this. What would have been interesting to know is how many patients had sort of functionally high risk disease? What did they relapse within 18 months of starting therapy? Because cytogenetically, a lot of these patients can't have high-risk cytogenetics based on the fact that they had the 1114, unless they had a deletion 17P. With all that said, I mean, high-risk cytogenetics also portend poor responses or duration of response to CAR-T, whether it's itacel or siltacel. So I think for that population, for the high ultra, the, the higher-risk patients, I don't have any qualms about um, pursuing siltacel. For maybe the ones without, I still think this is a very convenient regimen. I mean, after you get through the sort of loading doses of DARA, you're talking about somebody coming in once a month for therapy. A lot has been made about the infection risk with venetoclax, but we're not seeing that as much in the 1114 patients. They seem to get the benefit without as much of the risk here. And I have actually used this regimen for patients and found it to be a very convenient one. I don't know if we're going to see 46 months for everybody, but so I think my answer to you would be, I would definitely consider Dara venetoclax dex for this population if I could get it, especially if we were having a hard time with CAR-T. But CAR-T presents a, a unique scenario where they can get a, a long treatment-free interval. I'm going to flip it around on you, though. We talked about Dara maintenance. If everybody's using Dara maintenance at some point, this regimen is not really going to necessarily be very applicable, right? 
Yeah, so if yeah, if we are starting to use data maintenance, I think many of the regi triplet regimens that we use in first relapse are not going to be applicable. But one thing that though, which I liked in the Perseus design, that at two years, patients who were MRD negative, I think they could stop data. So I would assume that most patients will have like far more than two year PFS. So they would probably relapse like not within 60 days or 90 days of stopping the data, but years after stopping the data. So in that case, maybe anti-CD38 antibody still be available to them at first relapse. But I get your point that Fair. if you continued that until relapse, then any data containing triplet will be out as an option in first relapse. Yeah. I mean, this is a question that I'm wondering how it's going to play out because less than 5% of the patients in this trial had prior data. How is it going to work with patients who we all give CD38 monoclonal antibodies during induction? Because take bortezomib as the example, right? When you look at the second line, I mean, DARA-VD, for what it's worth, does not seem to perform as well as DARA-KD or DARA-PD. And you could use the same for ESA-KD, ESA-PD. So I just, I wonder, like we assume, oh, you can just add the CD38 later and it's not going to make a difference because they've been off of it for so long and they have now they have expression again of CD38, but we don't know that's true. So it is going to make it hard to apply it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we don't know. We are assuming that if they're exposed, they will be responding the same as naive, but we don't know that. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, all right. So we'll go to the next trial. So we'll discuss the GMMG relapse trial, which is doesn't reflect contemporary practice, but I think there were still some good teaching points from that trial. So this is a large randomized trial done by the German group, and they presented the eight-year follow-up data from the relapse trial, which had randomized patients mostly at first relapse to a single autotransplant versus continuous Revlimid dex. And patients in the autotransplant arm had Revlimid dex induction and then underwent autotransplant. And the other arm had continuous Rev dex until progression. An important point to note here is that this is not similar to patients receiving delayed transplant at first relapse. In fact, 94% of patients in this trial had received at least one autotransplant prior, and 40% had received tandem autotransplant in frontline setting. So this is not a situation where you're not performing transplant in, at newly diagnosed setting and delaying it to first relapse. So the prevailing dogma in the field is that patients with a really long remission from first transplant, some say greater than three years, some say greater than five years, should be preferably offered a second autotransplant. In other words, we have been using it as a predictive biomarker that if you have a long time to progression after first transplant, then you will you, you may benefit more preferentially from a second transplant compared to a triplet regimen continuously. So I think the results of GMG trial provides a lot of key insights, even though the control arm of continuous RevDEX doesn't reflect correct, correct uh, current clinical practice. So Ben, can you tell us the results of this study and, and what were your key takeaways from it? Yeah, so I mean, bottom line is there was no difference in, in progression-free survival or overall survival between the arms, which on the face was kind of surprising because sort of is proof that an autotransplant in the multiple relapse setting you know, is a bad idea. The curves were superimposable. doesn't matter the subgroups you looked at. It didn't even really matter if patients benefited from their first transplant. If they had a long first progression-free survival, it didn't necessarily, I mean, they did better with either arm, but there was no difference between the Lendex versus Lendex and a second transplant. Well, let's back up for a second. We're saying second transplant, but that's actually not true for all patients. 45% of the patients in these sort of salvage transplant arm, as we'll call it. I don't love the term salvage, but you know, that's what I use. 45% had a tandem transplant at initial frontline therapy. And 36% in the Lendex arm had a tandem transplant. So 
I wonder if this influenced results of the trial. And I don't have a particular bias towards transplant or not. At least I don't think so. I'll, whatever the patient is, whatever's appropriate for the patient is, is way to go. But I wonder if that influenced the results because you're, you're talking not necessarily about a second dose of Malphalan, but a third dose of Malphalan versus none. And I, I don't personally use tandem in my own practice. It's extremely rare that I would do it. So I think that limits sort of the applicability. Not to mention, you're talking about RD as a comparator arm. To me, that doesn't impact the significance as much because, I mean, if anything, you were using a drug that should not be using a regimen that should be less effective than whatever else we have to offer. So, I mean, the only difference is to say Len refractory patients just behave different than those who are not exposed or not refractory. So again, not speaking to not as applicable to the U.S. population. The last thing is they did it from an ITT analysis, but of course, 29% in the auto arm did not actually receive the auto. But I think that's life. That's what happens. You plan for it and you don't get there. But those patients really are more reflective of a non-transplant arm because they just got RD. I wonder if if you had a more effective regimen, if that would have enabled more people to get to transplant. But again, that's life. It doesn't always work out the way that you plan. So I take away from it is I sort of had already been moving away from the second or third transplants because we have CAR-T now and bispecifics and all these things, but there are patients out there who've got 10 years out of their first transplant. I mean, gosh, I, I think it's worthwhile considering another dose in those circumstances, but it's nuanced conversation for sure. Right. Next, let's discuss the survival results of KARMA-3 trials. For the audience, the KARMA-3 trial was the first published randomized control trial of a BCMA CAR-T cell therapy in myeloma, where they randomized patients with two to four prior lines of therapy to IDESL or ABECMA versus standard of care, with the control arm having a restricted choice of regimens, including DARA-POMDEX, DARA-VELCATE-DEX, IGZA-REF-DEX, CARFILZAMIB-DEX, and ELO-POMDEX. It's important to note that 95% of patients in this trial were DARA refractory and about 70% were triple class refractory. So it was a heavily pretreated patient, not really somebody in first relapse, for example. The trial allowed crossover to IDSL in the control arm, which is appropriate since the efficacy of IDSL is already established in late relapse setting. And we learned from the prior NEGM publication that the trial had met its primary endpoint of PFS, with the median PFS being 14 months in the IDSL arm and 4 months in the control arm with a hazard ratio of 0.49. At ASH23, they presented the overall survival data. So Ben, can you tell us what the overall survival data showed? Yeah, and I, I will say it's really interesting data. It was, data was harmed in this analysis. It was tortured, but we can talk about that. I mean, the from the ITT standpoint, for the intention to treat standpoint, there was no OS benefit for IDASEL. The hazard ratio was 1.01. The curves crossed at 15 months. That's the top line sort of uh, results. But then they did a series of other analyses. So they looked at overall survival among patients who were treated with IDASEL only. So in other words, the people who never made it to receive their cells because they had disease progression and because this was an ITT approach to the phase three, a patient who was getting bridging therapy with the same regimens that the standard of care arm was getting they progress, they're counted as a progression event. You could argue it's not really fair to to, to uh, penalize the IDASEL arm because of that. We can talk about that. But th the hazard ratio was 0.83. It still was not significant though. Um, then they did a sensitivity analysis where they adjusted for crossover. So 
The patients in the standard of care arm who eventually got Itacel are removed from this as analysis, essentially, or accounted for. And the hazard ratio is now 0.72. The 95% confidence interval still included one. It was 0.49 to 1.01. So close. The dreaded trended toward overall survival benefit. So then, importantly, they showed causes of death. And the bulk of the early deaths, which they defined as less than six months from randomization, were in patients who died while waiting for Itacel. So out of the 30 patients who died in the Itacel arm within six months, 17 of them, more than half, died before Itacel infusion with 13 after. So, you know, and then when you look at deaths from adverse events, there weren't major differences between that and the standard of care arm. But so it, I guess from a toxicity standpoint, that's sort of nice to see. It's a weird way to say that, but it's nice to see that there weren't major differences there, um, that there were no movement disorders or Parkinsonism. We did not see any evidence of secondary uh, T-cell malignancies like has been, uh, like is being investigated by the FDA. So all of that was encouraging, but I'm curious, how, what did you guys think about all these sensitivity analyses? I mean, do you look at that favorably? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I don't know if I understand like statistically all the sensitivity analyses completely, but you know, the, regarding the crossover analysis, if after crossover, there is no overall survival benefit, I mean, that to me speaks to the point that if you give it a two to four line versus a five line, the overall survival is the same as long as you give it at some point. That doesn't really convince me to give it earlier. And then the second thing is I would say that there was a significant number of deaths while waiting for IDSL. But again, that's life. That's what happens with CAR T-cell therapy and they should be penalized for that. For example, if this was a bispecific antibody which you can give right away, that would not happen, right? So patients would not be waiting, while they would not die while, while waiting. So I mean, if you did a hypothetical that's a randomized trial of CAR-T versus bispecifics, CAR-T should be penalized for this. That if, And these patients were sick patients, two to four prior lines of therapy, not like the CAR-T-4, which were a little bit earlier lines of therapy and maybe a little bit lower risk, but this, these were all heavily pretreated patients and many of them likely needed like rapid treatment and they were getting yeah. you know, inadequate bridging treatment. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm still excited about CAR-Ts and early relapse just because it's one and done. Maybe Siltacil... We will see how the overall survival data pans out for Siltacel. But uh, at the same time, I think this data will give me a pause before considering, let's say, an early relapse patient who is just a biochemical relapse and not high risk. I wouldn't be rapidly reaching for a CAR-T in that patient, whereas somebody is high risk, yes, has a really functional high risk or rapidly progressing disease, which I can control with bridging therapy. I really want them to get an effective treatment, yes. But yeah, but this data doesn't make me too enthusiastic, I would say, to reach out for CAR-T in early relapse in, in a patient who is having biochemical relapse. So that's what I would say. I don't know, Eddie, if you had any comments. Yeah, I, I want to and talk particularly about the crossover and the intention to treat things because they're, I think, both very important. The crossover thing is tricky because you don't want to penalize the sponsor and investigators for including crossover in this trial, which, of course, Cartitude 4 did not include. And so... It's the right thing ethically by the patients in the control arm to allow them to have crossover. Now, the flip side is that doing a sensitivity analysis for crossover is, is disingenuous because, as Raj says, we know that we know, no one is suggesting that ISL was an effective at treating myeloma. The question is when, how, in whom, and, and those questions mean that you, you want to test it early against later. And so, so I, I do think that sensitivity analysis is, is not super helpful, even though you don't want to unfairly penalize them if you're comparing to different trials where crossover wasn't included. The intention to treat question is so important because so often in the CAR-T trials, it's not assessed. And I think 
We saw this with Cartitude 4 at ASCO as well, that there are a number of patients who progress while waiting. And of course, that means that manufacturing time is important and manufacturing reliability is important. But it, it also means perhaps we need to think about very carefully about what we're using as bridging. And I'm sure that will be a, a component of CAR-T trials going forward to think very carefully about what to use as bridging. And I think when we compare, say, real-world biospecifics and real-world CAR-T, that would be a big thing to remember that that you can reach for biospecific off the shelf. And that means that I suspect biospecific will look worse in the real world because those patients will progress through. Okay, but, I have But a I think they're all, yeah, go. I have a hot take on that. So you talked about CAR-T versus biospecifics are off the shelf. You use them right away. Great. But the median time to response for a biospecific, whether it's teclistamab or elranatumab or telquetamab, it's over a month. In most cases, it's 1.2 months. Okay. So that's how long? That's five weeks. How long does it take to get CAR-T cells from the time that you collect them to infuse them? It could be six to eight weeks in most cases right now in the real world. So, and you can give bridging therapy during that time. So I would say not so fast. I mean, I've definitely had patients on biospecifics who respond quickly, but not all. And it's sometimes you're biting, you're gritting your teeth, hoping that they're going to respond because you, you can't use anything else while you're waiting for that to work. Whereas with CAR-T, theoretically you could. And this is why I think Cartitude 4 was a much cleaner design. The, the fact that they went to one to three prior lines was probably smart strategically because the, the comparator arm was also much clearer, right? We can look at DARA-PD and say, yeah, that's, that's something that a lot of people would use at this point in therapy. And while people did progress while waiting for treatment, you can see that in the PFS curves, right? Where they cross as, as like around the eight to 10 week mark, right? You probably, I don't know, but I'm guessing that we're going to see far fewer deaths during the, there might be progression events, but less deaths during that initial waiting period, the vein to vein time. And that's because you're taking patients perhaps earlier, you're using effective bridging therapy. So you can actually avoid people from dying earlier. With the, with the Karma 3 data, what's challenging is that they went for two to four prior lines of therapy where there's no clear standards of care. Some have argued that even the control arms here are not regimens that we would use in these settings. You're probably using drugs that a patient has been exposed to, at least one in those cases. So they were probably getting ineffective bridging therapy and therefore dying from rapidly progressive disease. That's what I would imagine is the case. So I think that's where the, the studies differ a lot. And ultimately, it may be to, to IDASEL's detriment because it was supposed to be reviewed by the FDA this month, and we heard that there was a delay, and it's going to go to ODAC for review. And I don't know if they had access to this data before that, but you could look at this overall survival data on one hand and say, just as you guys said, look, the question is not whether you want to get IDASEL or not. We're not denying people to get IDASEL. We're just saying you have to wait till the fifth line of therapy. Whether, But to answer the question about earlier versus later, you're right. I mean, this doesn't show that giving it earlier, uh, at least IDASEL, leads to differences in, in overall survival right now. So the one thing I will say that's encouraging, though, is you're not seeing people dying as much from adverse events related to CAR-T, which was initially my concern when uh, this data initially came out and wasn't so expanded upon. That, those are my thoughts on it.
Yeah, definitely. And and one of the things that Siltacel definitely is a very good product and, and maybe superior to Idacel, but one of the things I have concerned about Siltacel is this late uh, neurotoxicity, the Parkinsonism-like. And also there was a abstract, I think, using, it, so it was like a meta-analysis that was presented at ASH this year where they looked at non-relapse mortality. And again, it was like not a head-to-head trial, but Siltacel, I think, one had one of the highest non-relapse mortality. Now, whether it was the patient population, it's hard to know. But we'll see what the Siltacel data looks like, the overall survival. I think it will be very interesting to see. But as you said, I mean, it was an earlier relapse population. So we would expect like less deaths in general because it was an earlier relapse and many of them were DARA sensitive. So DARA POMDEX would probably be a reasonable regimen for many of those patients. Whereas here, 95% were DARA refractory. So I don't know how a lot of patients got DARA POMDEX, but they're DARA refractory. So of course, that's not going to work. So this was not the best patient population to go after. Unfortunately, what's done is done. Right. I mean, I think from the real world, when you talk about non-relapse mortality, you probably need to wait a little bit before you draw too many conclusions. Because when these standards, when the commercial therapies come out, who are the patients that you take first? All the people that didn't meet the criteria for trials, at least in my case, that was true, right? Um, That was true for itacells, true for cells. So you take, in some ways, patients who didn't meet eligibility criteria for one reason or another. Maybe they had a certain comorbid conditions or prior cancers, uh, a whole host of other things that may make them more likely to have more significant toxicities from the drug. So I think as time goes on, that equilibrates, that, e- that evens out, because especially as the number of clinical trials for CAR-T go down, and that's not really the avenue by which people are getting CAR-T. So I, I, I think that's an important piece to remember too. All right. I think we are slightly more than top of the hour. Thanks a lot, Ben, for joining us today. And I hope we'll have you back sometime to talk more about myeloma. Go all day. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Thanks so much, Ben.